Harry, I'm quite uh, intrigued about the size of this uh, project off the coast of Ireland. Um, Iceland. Iceland, of course I meant, I said Iceland, surely. And uh, and I'm not really sure I know much about Hecate Independent Power, so perhaps you can tell us a bit about that and this 10 what project. Yeah, I mean, so, so firstly, Hecate Independent Power, or HIP, are a, an Anglo-US joint venture between Hecate Holdings, which is... Um, just a massive US institution, really. It's got um, quite a large stakeholding from Repsol, which is one of the US oil, uh, oil majors, uh, one of the Spanish oil majors. Um, and then IPC is the other 50% stakeholder. So that's a gap. They sort of mainly operate gas plants in the UK. Looking at the project, obviously, the first of the scale is pretty impressive 10 gigawatts, bigger than any um, offshore wind project we've ever seen. Also, the fact that it's going to, it would be the first project to be sort of owned and operated in overseas water. So this would be fully operated by UK, the UK national grid, but actually um, fully built in Icelandic waters. I think, so the, the plan for the project is for it to be done in sort of 10 one gigawatt pods um, off around the coast of Iceland, really, um, and with each pod having a, its own HVDC cable across the Atlantic, but around sort of around 1,000 kilometres onto the shore in the UK. They, these are float, floating wind turbines. Yeah, so it, it's not necessarily floating. Um, the first couple, I imagine, will be fixed. Those are supposed to come online in sort of around 2025. But well, this at, is incredibly quick, isn't it, from scratch? It's incredibly quick, and it, there will be a lot of aspersion cast over whether or not that's possible. Um, I imagine because of the um, lack of sort of planning regulations you'd, you'll have in Iceland, because obviously there's not a, an industry there yet for that, that could happen. Well, what does Iceland get out of it? So Iceland, um, mainly they're going to benefit in terms of the capital investment that these companies will make in the infrastructure surrounding it. So there'll be a lot of sort of capital injected. And I think there's something around 15,000 jobs that are going to come from the first two of these te- uh, one gigawatt pods. I know for, for sure that the cables that are going to be used are going to be made in the UK, they're going to be made in the northeast. Um, and I imagine the turbines themselves will be created in Europe. But I think a lot of the sort of staging, especially if this comes to floating wind, will be in Iceland. Um, and in terms of Iceland, it's not really a massive, it's not too much skin off their back, really, because, I mean, Iceland have no need for offshore wind power themselves. They're basically, not, they're 99% powered by renewables anyway. Um, so it's just sort of leasing out a bit of um, sea that otherwise would be pretty unused. I mean, obviously, they use it for, for quite extensively for fishing, but there's, there's very much ways to get around that now. How deep is the sea there? So again, it varies. I mean, this is why we're going to see this big disparity between fixed and floating projects. Obviously, it will start with fixed. That's why 2025, obviously, the technology might not be quite there for floating wind in that time frame for sort of a one gigawatt wind farm. But looking sort of beyond that to sort of the latter of these these pods, they will definitely be floating based on the fact Iceland is essentially one massive volcano coming out of the sea. Right. The, the depths of water that aren't that far offshore are quite deep. And it's quite similar, this this Iceland project, to the Denmark offshore floating wind islands, isn't it? Yeah, it's not dissimilar at all. Um, I think it, the only difference is that it's solely going to be, so this Icelandic project won't supply Iceland with electricity at all. It will all come to, to the UK, whereas mm. the North Sea energy islands will be in whatever waters they're placed in, but they will be used to sort of supply Europe as a whole. I mean, that's based on probably a more EU-based approach, I suppose. Yeah, German finance and German and Danish know-how feeling both 
countries, but Germany's bigger, so it'll take more. You know, I mean, that seems to be a very sensible approach and uh, will end up as a net benefit to Denmark in terms of revenue. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's 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 you know, just because they own the, the, the that part of the sea. Um, moving on, I did a piece on um, what's going on at Duke Energy, and, and most people led on the fact that Duke Energy was involved in this, and it, I don't think it's very interesting at all that Duke Energy is involved, apart from the fact that they, um, as a company, they, they're keen to do, to do things that are out of the ordinary, um, they don't want to go the traditional renewables route as much as they, as they are being shoved, pushed down that route by uh, investors. And they came across um, this company, Malta Inc. Now, Malta Inc. has been around for uh, three or four years, and it started out as a, a Google moonshot company. But I, what I thought was uh, really quite interesting is the way they um, are um, creating energy storage. But the way they're creating energy storage was they're using renewable energy not to create heat, but to create a, what, what do we call it, a heat um, so, so not to actually create the heat, but to guide the heat, if you see what I mean, by using heat pumps. Uh, I, I just found that really quite bizarre that you can use 100 megawatts of energy to, to, and you end up with 300 megawatts of energy. How can you do this? How can a heat pump do this? Well, the reason the heat pump is so efficient is it's all its energy goes into pumping the heat. It's not its own heat. It, it takes it from ambient uh, surroundings. And um, and when you use a, an, an air source heat pump, you're taking it from the outside air, air or a ground source heat pump, you're taking it for the differential in uh, the, 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 the temperature of ground. Uh, here, they artificially create a boring old uh, molten salt uh, capability on the hot end and a sort of freezing water or freezing fluid, not not actually doing a state change, but getting very cold on the other end, and just use renewable energy to effectively create a heat store. And then, of course, the round trip effect of, of then using that heat energy to generate electricity would normally be a disastrous loss of energy. But it isn't because you, you, you haven't actually generate the energy using so, solar or wind. The idea is you use solar, you buy solar or wind energy just to fuel, to power the, the heat pump. Uh, I just thought it was a fascinating idea. And it has been around for a while. Uh, and the fact that Duke's going to try it out with, a, with an existing coal plant means that they, so Duke has this idea, they, I, I think it's hilarious that uh, Lynn Good, the chairman, calls them Zelfers, you know, zero emitting load following resources. Yes. And uh, so basically, don't say it's a natural gas uh, turbine, don't say it's uh, with, with C CCUS, don't say it's a nuclear plant, it could just be anything, as long as it's dispatchable, therefore not an intermittent renewable. This turns a, a, an intermittent renewable into a dispatchable by allowing it to the heat heat storage to um, to balance a renewable power. I just think it was uh, I missed it uh, when it first came out. I mean, we did a few stories on it, we covered it, but I hadn't realised how significant it was. And and now it's got um, it's got some money from uh, Breakthrough, uh, which is um, the the billionaires club that uh, includes Bill Gates's revenue and now Duke's trying it out and if they find it works they're gonna, they're gonna you know turn all their coal plants into these is, is it 
Is it turning some kind of turbine? How? How? So you you move okay, so the heat what, around. So what, what you do is effectively you have some kind of sort of sealant fluid which is heated or or frozen, or, you know, it, it, uh, by like a refrigerant in your mm. fridge, and you pump it. Ah, uh, okay. And you let it absorb heat from where from from wherever it's going to absorb heat, and and then you move that heat. Right. to a, a place and concentrate it and then when you want the heat as electricity you do turn a turbine exactly what you do you can even uh, i'm sure rig it to turning an existing coal turbine which is after all steam driven uh, i'm sure you could rig it to, to to drive a steam turbine so you could leave a lot of resource in your coal coal plant that's exactly as is, and you can even use the the boiler the cold boiler to store chunks of molten salt or you know you could eventually you could use it all so so you you could leave a cold plant more or less as it is and still get energy out of it and to i mean they tried this all over the world germany in particular has had multiple uh, fundings to, to say go and try to use a cold plant put solar panels where all the coal was stored create molten molten salt inside the boiler but they haven't. Nobody's used this um, heat pump process, which is hyper efficient. So this week's um, country in focus uh, was Mexico, and Andrews did a lovely job on this, where he was trying to explain how um, Mexico has ended up left wing and somehow a traitor to renewables, which doesn't seem to be the right way around. It didn't look good. I mean, your outcome as your forecasting doesn't look wonderful. Um, Andrews, tell us about it. Well, this current administration that's been in power since 2018 has cancelled the constitutional reforms which basically allowed wind and solar to participate on the grid. So that was a that was brought in in 2014. It was a fairly standard pro-renewable reform that enables mass investment. And then uh, but that's now been shut down by the current administration, probably reducing. Uh, so far, it seems to have reduced renewable development to 40 percent of what it should be to begin with it'll probably go even lower than that and we're probably just looking at some residual projects so initially the new administration just used some regulatory changes to uh, make things harder for wind and solar in a variety of ways like um, how much they have to pay for transmission uh, for transmission and grid connection costs and maybe there's a rule where they don't have priority anymore over I think, yeah, I think they put that into law. There's, they no longer have priority over state-owned fossil fuels. So a fossil fuel plant that's owned by the state, which is most of them, can just run anytime. But a privately owned wind or solar project has to defer to them on the on the grid, which is most of them are privately owned. Uh, and that's that's really the main dynamic. It's not actually fossil fuels versus renewables. But it's that, that's major. Insane, isn't it? I mean, hmm? this is insane because we want to spend more money doing old things with old technologies, which we can't update because we can't buy the stuff because we, we, our international standing is so low. We mm. can't borrow money and we're not allowing anyone to lend us any anyway, um, so that we can have the least efficient grid on the planet, so that we can charge our really poor people as much as possible for electricity. And we have to do this because we're dependent upon it. It just seems insanity. I mean, well, it doesn't matter what um, technology they use, as long as it's Pemex. Why can't Pemex enter? Uh, you know, because it, well, it really believes in petroleum. <laughs> it's just, 
I think they they made some noises at some point about a, a Pemex owned solar plant or maybe a, a CFE, which is the state utility. Yeah. Uh, but I can't I don't didn't see anything about that recently. Uh, well, so, they get yeah, they, they really messages are. here, don't you? You, you know, the uh, president doesn't like renewables, whereas what he's saying is that they don't like foreigners. Yeah, and and you should be able to embrace renewables. But how do you do that when you've got to import all the panels from China? Yeah. Same same problem. Well, he might not mind China so much and uh, importing the panels. I think it's really the money for the for the entire projects and the fact that the projects would likely be owned by private investors. I think that's been the problem. So do you do you think there would be any way to revive things with like a publicly owned energy grid that's renewables it just seems like it's not going to happen and they're just this is a country that's going to go bankrupt yeah i mean how many other countries are there who have to stay married to petroleum because they have no other form of income we've talked about a few in the country in focus but it's unless they engineer a transition they're just getting deeper and deeper into a hole I think I have some fears in this article about how much of the state's budget is contributed from Pemex, but also goes to Pemex, this this really old utility, sorry, old monopoly that's been going since 1938. And it's it's a national holiday the day they uh, nationalised the entire oil industry. What, what happened, though, was we did see what Mexico could do. Uh, it could do the, the typical privatisation um, renewable energy stuff because it did that under the prior administration. The the problem was it just didn't have popular support, especially when they they increased the gas prices by 25% at one point in 2016. They could do perfectly well. They have this wind tunnel between two mountain ranges that's very powerful for solar. They've got a nice plateau that's oh, every bit wind. as good as Arizona or California for, yeah. for solar. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, uh, they need the equator. This is this is. Uh, a country crying out for renewables and what it needs is um, unfortunately the voters to suffer the pain of even more increases in prices which they won't because he he um, gives it away to his um, to his voters it but, was very very strange looking at the polling because he's considered weak in in the public eyes on both crime and the economy and crime is a pretty big issue in mexico but he still has positive ratings uh, because of social programs so I really and, you know, during this article, I was talking about, oh, it's this many billion debt, $110 billion of debt for just the state oil monopoly. Uh, you know, how long is that going to be sustainable? It won't and, be sustainable. It will go bust. It will just stop performing. It, 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 um, all these things, and especially when <clears throat> you, you, you have no, you don't have a strong currency. I mean, you can't issue yourself new currency uh, if you're paying for things in dollars. You're tied to the dollar, and unfortunately, that's that's where Mexico is finding itself, and it doesn't like it. That's They've that. sort of copied Venezuela a little bit, at least with the with the motto for for Pemex. They they give it a new slogan, which is for the rescue of sovereignty. So that's their priority, and it's like uh, Venezuela's full oil sovereignty. So and and uh, on paper, Andres, it's you, you're saying that Mexico is the perfect renewable. Um, geography so similar to the country in focus from last week from uh, with with Algeria would would that be well it, it's got yeah it's got plenty of room uh, it's got this big plateau so that's lot, lots of flat flat land that's sunny and doesn't have much people living it and then it's got this uh, Oaxaca I don't know I didn't pronounce that right but Oaxaca 
Um, Wasaka. Wasaka. Very impressive. But it's, they've got some onshore wind that's 10 meters per second, which is the same as the offshore wind in the North Sea. So mm. that's very good. I was surprised. It's, it seems like a very mixed country. It, it actually has the same ease of doing business ranking as uh, Chile and Eastern Europe. But at the same time, it has 100 political candidates murdered every election cycle. It could all fall apart, but it has some strong points. And I think um, it was 88 the last time I checked for the midterms, which are going to happen in, at the end of this week. And if, if he wins big in the midterms, he'll have enough of a majority. Uh, when I say he, I mean AMLO, the, the president. He'll have enough, enough of a majority to totally shut down renewables and totally shut down private sector um, participation in the energy sector. Right until the population uh, invades the palace and strings him up because they can't eat. I mean, it's it's just short-sighted. And perhaps perhaps he's got a plan. Um, it's just it's not obviously it's not apparent right now. Um, let's move on. Let's move on. Um, taking the the next item, I did a research piece on. Uh, I was I was interested in the idea. We keep coming across the idea that peak demand for oil has happened, and other people saying no, it's ten years away. And I I, I realised that. Um, so we just I did a forecast using the look back and anger numbers for EVs and using that as uh, as the demand, as, as plotting the, the fall in demand for petrol. And what's interesting is, um, you know, we, we, we realise that for the next 10 years, there will be an increase in the number of uh, internal combustion engine uh, vehicles in the world because the number of cars is going up and EVs has taken a larger and larger percentage and um, it doesn't actually start going down till about 2029. But of course, the number of miles driven per car varies hugely from country to country. But I don't think the pattern varies. I think that in 2019, everybody used them in a particular way. In 2020, uh, that crashed fairly dramatically. And it won't, it won't come back you know, with virtual business methods and more people working at home, an increasing freelance population, and the number of uh, businesses trying to cut down on travel budgets. We're never going to see um, petroleum reach the, the uh, values, reach the uh, sales vo- volume as 2019. But we, we're going to see something close, and it's about 10 years away. So you get ExxonMobil um, saying, oh, we can ignore this. We can see it coming back. They're right. They can see it on the way back. And the graph tells the story but it never quite reaches the 2019 numbers and then by 2040 uh, the oil industry is is virtually dead it's moribund it's got it can see its fate clearly there's nothing else possible and in fact that's probably clearly going to be visible in 2033 that just by the number of EVs on the road and the rate at which they're increasing increasingly being sold and so I just thought doing a, a, an exercise in research just to show that was worth doing. 